called the sun. It's appropriately named, I think. The complex is mostly surrounded by mountains. It's a beautiful country area with a lot of oaks, junipers, and pine trees. What does it look like? It looks like desert. <laughs> Lots of desert, sand and dirt. So on the way to work, we were avoiding kangaroos, wombats, sort of emus. As I said, it's very stereotypical Australian. Last season of the Invisible Network podcast, we took a tour of the US, visiting ground stations for the Laser Communications Relay Demonstration, or LCRD, one of NASA's latest demonstrations of high data rate optical communications technologies. This season, we'll take a tour that's even grander in scope. In this episode, we'll visit personnel at all three deep space network complexes, journeying from a Californian desert to the mountains of Spain to an Australian river valley. But before we leave on our world tour, we have to take a quick stop at the Deep Space Network's home base, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Southern California. Uh, my name is Mike Levesque, and I'm the DSN Deputy Project Manager. From a room with many names, he wishes us bon voyage. We're at JPL um, in Pasadena, one of the buildings uh, we, we call the Dark Room. It's called, uh, more formally, the Deep Space Operations Center. It's also known as the center of the universe. You'll see a, uh, a plaque in the center of the room known as the center of the universe. And, and, and it, it, it truly is all the data that we collect around the universe uh, passes through that, that building and, and gets distributed to many of our customers all around the world. But anyway, we have other sites too. They're called the deep space communication complexes and they're separated uh, 120 uh, degrees around the globe and that uh, provides us uh, continuous coverage or visibility into space 24 by seven. Uh, one is in California called Goldstone. It's about 70 kilometers or so from Barstow. And uh, one is in Spain and that's in uh, Robledo de Chavela. That's about uh, 65 kilometers from Madrid. We usually call it Madrid, although some folks also call it uh, Robledo. And then uh, the third site's in Australia in a place called Tidbinbinilla. It's uh, 40 kilometers or so from Canberra. And uh, we often call it Canberra, although some of the seasoned guys call it uh, Tid for uh, short for uh, Tidbinbinilla. As we covered in the previous episode, the architectural features of these complexes, one large 70-meter antenna and a handful of 34-meter antennas, are largely the same. However, the environmental and cultural differences make each station truly unique. You go to Australia and uh, there's Australians running the station. And, uh, you know, of course, there's kangaroos and, and such. And in Spain, of course, uh, it's run by Spanish citizens. And uh, you, you might see some uh, bulls walking around and grazing around that location. Then you've got Goldstone, which is out in the high desert. A lot of burrows that run around on, on Goldstone from the old uh, gold mining days. Those locations were originally chosen to be kind of RF isolated, radio frequency isolated. So, you know, they tend to be in valleys and, and away from uh, population centers. At any given moment, these ground stations are tracking spacecraft from Mars to Jupiter to interstellar space. 
There's seldom a moment where the network is at rest. DSN project manager, Brad Arnold. We're a live operation where we have operators physically sitting at consoles, uh, managing each track. And um, we have a system called Follow the Sun, which is probably not too novel for some organizations, but it was for ours a few years ago when we rolled this out. Follow the Sun? Yeah, Follow the Sun. It's appropriately named, I think. Originally, we operated those complexes 24 by 7. With Follow the Sun, we decided since they're 120 degrees apart, the day shift rotates nicely around the globe to each site. So with Follow the Sun, we chose to change the system so that we could operate only uh, during the daytime at each of those complexes. So that would be day shift only. So going from 24 by 7 to 9 by 7. The complex that is in its daylight working hours is actually managing the tracks for the entire network. So if it's daylight in Spain, those operators are actually working the antennas at Goldstone and in Canberra. And as the earth turns and suddenly it's daylight in, in the United States, the Goldstone operators take over and the uh, Madrid operators get to go home. That actually requires an interface at dusk and dawn in between uh, each of the complexes where the operators actually do communicate with each other and they actually hand over the tracks that are, are occurring at that time. So there's a communication that happens, there's a little dance that occurs when, when one's going home and the other's getting to work. This dance around the globe isn't purposeless. One of the challenges we, we had from NASA was to be more efficient and, and to reduce costs. And we looked at a number of aspects in the DSN to do that. And, and one of them was operations. Operations was a, a large fixed cost in, in the DSN. And we had at the time when we started the project uh, about 96 operators worldwide. With Follow the Sun, we reduced from 96 operators to today we have 48 worldwide. It offers improvement in efficiency. Follow the Sun allowed us to have just one set of operators a day shift at each complex rather than a three shift at each complex. So instead of nine shifts plus extras, now we only have one shift per or three, three shifts. In a similar spirit of efficiency, we'll follow the sun on our journey around the globe to each of the deep space network complexes. I'm Danny Baird. This is the Invisible Network. Our first stop isn't too far from JPL and the center of the universe. It's just a few hours' drive north and east of Pasadena into the high desert of California. My name is uh, Robert. I go by Bob Haroldson. Uh, I am a project manager out here at Goldstone, California. Goldstone is about 35 miles uh, north of Barstow, California, which is in the middle of the Mojave Desert. It's located on Fort Irwin, the Army base, and it's the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Bob has played many roles supporting NASA's Space Communications and Navigation Program, but most of his time has been with the Deep Space Network in California. 
One of Bob's most challenging projects during his long tenure with the Deep Space Network was a significant upgrade to Goldstone's largest antenna. I first started in 1983 out at the Goldstone site. I was a project manager on a large hydrostatic runner repair. We actually replaced the hydrostatic runner on the 70-meter antenna we have out here. And that task was really exciting to me. And what is a hydrostatic runner? A hydrostatic bearing is a bearing that has liquid that flows between two surfaces. The liquid gets forced through an orifice and that then separates the two surfaces. It's very similar to an engine that has the oil ports so that the pistons can move. And so what it is in the, on the 70 meter antenna, it's a large 80 foot donut and all the upper structure, the rotating structure floats on three pads. The pads are, I'm going to say about three foot by five foot and they have six orifices each. And this high pressure oil is forced through the pad, which then lifts up the 18 million pounds of antenna. It floats on 10,000 inches of oil underneath that. The Goldstone complex itself is enormous. It's the biggest of the three DSN complexes in terms of acreage. What does it look like? It looks like desert. <laughs> Lots of desert, sand and dirt. But the neat thing is, is that on the way, on the way, you actually start seeing some of the antennas. The first sight you'll actually see are the two Gemini antennas, which are two 34-meter antennas originally built for the Army and then given to JPL. One of those antennas is what Gavert uses to do the science. Gavert is an educational program we'll talk about more in a later episode. But back to Bob's journey to work. Going up the hill, the first place you get to is called the Echo Site, and it has a large goldstone painted on the hill. So that's pretty cool. And from there, if you continue down NASA Road another 10 miles or so, there is the Mars Site, where you have the 70 meter and a defunct 34 meter. And... Uh, that's where the signal processing center is. These defunct antennas scattered about the complex are ones that have been retired as NASA embraces newer infrastructure and technologies. So now the signal processing center, we'll call it SPC-10, it controls all the local antennas. And since JPL went to what they call follow the sun, when it's our daylight, we're controlling all the antennas around the world. And when it's our nighttime, Spain or Australia will be controlling our antennas. It still takes a small village to keep the station up and running between network controllers at the Signal Processing Center, SPC-10, and all the employees keeping the antennas up and running. Oh, and then let me get back to <laughs> this tour. <laughs> so between, between the Echo site and Mars site, if you made a left, then you get into the, the uh, valley, Apollo Valley. We still have the 26 meters and we had the nine meter that was used for shuttle and all that kind of stuff back in the day. And uh, in there you have three antennas, which are beam waveguide antennas. In addition to those three beam waveguides, a type of antenna where radio waves are guided from the dish to the receiving equipment, there's another one under construction, which will be operational in a few years. This new 34 meter antenna is part of a DSN expansion around the globe to help keep up with the increasing number of NASA deep space missions. Goldstone also has a unique capability for radio science. We have a high power transmitter. We've used it to map the surface of Mars, of Venus. We also do asteroids, so we can actually, when we shoot the radar pulse up and see the signal back, we can actually determine the shape of the asteroid, its rotation rate, 
and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's that's one of the unique services we do have. We'll talk asteroids in a later episode on DSN Radio Science. In terms of mission communication support using Goldstone antennas, Bob's favorite moments on the job involved the support he provided missions during milestone events. Other real neat things is the the uh, entry, descent, and landings of the various Mars landers that we supported. Those seven minutes of terror, as they called it. To close out, I'll let Bob speak to one of the more uh, seismic challenges he's faced during his time at Goldstone. Uh, um, one of the notable things, really big things that happened was the earthquakes out here at California. The large 70-meter antenna, it was getting ready to acquire a bird, and the, the shaking tore our subreflector off of our <laughs> off of the off the quad legs. And so, yeah, that was down for six months as we fixed that. To translate the space talk, the 70-meter antenna was just about to communicate with a spacecraft when an earthquake tore off the very tip of the antenna, which meant the DSN had to take it out of service for six months. Thankfully, the network can rely on coverage from other antennas throughout the network to cover a down 70-meter, whether that's due to routine maintenance or rare unplanned outages due to events like an earthquake. But what do the engineers at Goldstone do when the ground starts shaking and an earthquake seems imminent? So you just make sure you have all your safety gear and you do everything uh, safely and you come, you come back after those kind of things. And that's how you deal with them because the work has to be done. Following the sun west, our next stop on our tour of deep space network facilities finds us down under with Richard Stevenson and the staff at the Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex. My name is Richard Stevenson, and I'm an operational supervisor at Canberra's Deep Space Communication Complex in Australia. My role entails uh, managing 16 controllers at Canberra, and, and we'll support all the NASA spacecraft and uh, also agencies that NASA has agreements with as well. Like many folks we've spoken to this season, Richard's first big mission was Voyager. Uh, I was actually recruited in 1988 to support the the Voyager 2 Neptune encounter. That was a great one to start to start off with. And when I first started, it was a case of, can it get any better than this? My career has uh, has, has been brilliant. Uh, you know, it's it's one high point to another high point. Richard's drive to work is just about as easygoing as he is. My drive to work is about 22 minutes uh, from home, so it's uh, nice and easy. I don't have any traffic at all, uh, or it's very rare. And if you think of the stereotypical countryside uh, for Australia, so we're driving through a mixture of paddocks and, and native bush. So on the way to work, we, we were avoiding kangaroos, wombats, sort of emus. As I said, it's very stereotypical Australia. Uh, and you throw in a couple of feral animals like foxes and rabbits and things to make you to make life more interesting again. It's an idyllic drive-in. And as you come over the final rise and you see the complex uh, sprawling over the Tippinbilla Valley, it, it's a lovely trip. And so it's always nice to arrive. Once you're at the complex, you'll see many of the same sorts of antennas as there were at Goldstone. Canberra has uh, a number of antenna. The, the, probably the most prominent one in the valley is the 70-meter antenna. And then we have three operational 34-beam waveguides. Canberra differs a little bit from Goldstone. Goldstone is sprawled over a number of valleys with a 20-minute drive between antennas in some cases. Canberra, we're all centralized. The operations building is 
more or less in the middle of them. And uh, each antenna is, is a pleasant lunchtime walk. We actually do sprawl over the Tibbinbilla Valley, uh, but it's probably no more than a, a couple of kilometers long. Canberra, Tidbinbilla Valley, and the surrounding region have played an important role in space communications since the earliest days of spaceflight. Australia has always provided a ground network, and we have a level of expertise, technical expertise, that, that's best in the world. In the 60s, there was actually three NASA tracking stations in and around Canberra. We had the Apollo antenna at Honeysuckle Creek. We had Rural Valley, which was the near Earth. And we had Tippinbilla, which has always been the deep space. And so in the 80s, it was all combined to Tippinbilla. The antenna from Honeysuckle Creek, which was the first man on the moon antenna, was brought here and continued on its career. The one in Rural Valley was shut down. Today, the support provided by Canberra is similar to that provided by the other two DSN complexes, but its position south of the equator and the ecliptic, the sun's apparent path over Earth, does offer something unique to the network. We can provide the 70-meter supports for things like Voyager, which are outside of our solar system now, uh, but also the high, high bit rates from Mars as well. Being in the Southern Hemisphere gives us a view of the Southern skies uh, that the North doesn't have. In particular, Voyager 2, after its last encounter with Neptune, went very south of the ecliptic, uh, which took it out of the northern hemisphere view and into the southern hemisphere. So uh, so we have exclusive rights to, to Voyager 2. Our 70 meter is the only antenna that can actually command Voyager 2. Our final stop on our tour of deep space network ground stations is in the mountains of Spain, near Madrid, one of the highest capital cities in Europe. My name is Susana Villalba, and I am currently working as a link control operator and technical site monitor uh, here at Madrid Deep Space Communication Complex. This complex is located in the northwest of Madrid in a little village called uh, Robledo de Chabela. We are surrounded by mountains. I live in a little village close to the station, just 10 minutes from here and it's easy for me to get here, but most people live in Madrid. The complex is mostly surrounded by mountains. It's a beautiful country area with a lot of oaks, junipers, and pine trees. It is also a protected area for birds, and you can see vultures and eagles. If you came from the north, uh, you also probably will see El Escorial, that is a beautiful city on the way to the complex. So it's, it's nice driving here. It's a very dangerous road because you can find sometimes deers or wild boars on, on the road. So you need to drive carefully. The antennas look impressive. They look like big white dishes. When people visit them for the first time, they look as astonished by its size. Sometimes you need to compare the size of the big antenna, and we usually tell the visitors that the size of the DSS-63 antenna, that is a 70-meter diameter antenna, is similar to a bullring, Madrid bullring, including the seats, the grandstands. Susanna is keen on the exploration and discovery that results from global collaboration. The Madrid DSN site is one example of the possibilities. Uh, in my opinion, relations and collaborations in space explorations are better and wider than in any other area. 
And we need to continue this way because space exploration could not be possible without the effort of several agencies and partners. And we need to continue this way. As for the future, Susanna seems most excited for the Artemis mission's journeys to the moon as the agency prepares for the longer voyage of sending astronauts to Mars. I think the best memories are still to come because when the man arrives to the moon again, I hope we can continue working here and supporting these missions. Fully, we will be part of the return of the first woman and the next man to the moon and later to Mars, if we are lucky enough. I'm very proud of this. That completes our journey around the world with the Deep Space Network. From California to Australia and Spain, we've followed the sun through a single day in the life of DSN operations. In our next episode, we'll transition to how the network provides services to missions. And remember, no matter the mission, no matter the ground station. When you go around the network, uh, there's, there's, there's so much passion uh, about what, what we do. And it's, it's only a tiny contribution, and it might be insignificant as far as the bigger picture, but you feel as if you're still contributing, and and that makes it all worthwhile. Somebody said, sort of, you know, if, if you if you feel passionate about your job and you enjoy your job, you, n- you never have to work a day in your life. And here I am, 34 years in my career, and I haven't worked a day in my life. Thank you for listening. Do you want to connect with us? The Invisible Network team is collecting questions about NASA's Deep Space Network from listeners like you. We're putting together a panel of NASA experts from across the space communications and navigation community to answer your questions. If you would like to participate, navigate over to NASA Scan on Twitter or Facebook and ask your questions using the hashtag AskScan. That's at NASA Scan, N-A-S-A-S-C-A-N, on social media with the hashtag AskScan. A-S-K-S-C-A-N. This Deep Space Network-focused season of The Invisible Network debuted in summer of 2022. Developed by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Southern California, the Deep Space Network is managed by JPL with funding and strategic oversight from the Space Communications and Navigation, or SCAN, program at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. This podcast is produced by SCAN at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, with episodes written and recorded by me, Danny Baird. Editorial support is provided by Catherine Schauer and JPL's Lawrence Focone. Our public affairs officer is Laura Bleacher. Special thanks to fall 2021 interns Julia Addy and Nate Thomas, Barbara Addy, SCAN Policy and Strategic Communications Director, and all those who have lent their time, talent, and expertise to making the Invisible Network a reality. Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. For transcripts of episodes, visit nasa.gov invisible. To learn more about the vital role that space communications plays in NASA's mission, visit nasa.gov scan. For more NASA podcast offerings, visit nasa.gov podcasts. There, you can check out On a Mission, the official podcast of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory.